mentioned, we are launching back into uh, the Sermon on the Mount. This is a sermon series, we're calling it Centered, and this will be part four. We started this, uh, we've, we've kind of just been chipping our way through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, kind of slowly. We actually started in May last year, so like 18 months ago, we started into the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, with the, where it begins with the Beatitudes, and we took them one by one. I think it took us about 10 weeks just to get through the Beatitudes, um, and then we, that was part one of the Centered Sermon series, and then we had part two, where we went further into Matthew chapter 5, and then part three into Matthew chapter 6. And this is our fourth part of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, and uh, where, we, where we look at Jesus' teaching in the final chapter, Matthew chapter 7, um, of the, the Sermon on the Mount. And, and really, the heartbeat remains the same for us as to why we would be back into the Sermon on the Mount as, as what drew us in in the very first place. And that is that when we emerged, we felt, we felt ourselves starting to emerge last May, starting to emerge hopefully from the end of the pandemic and all that that meant, there was a lot of, you remember, there was just a sense of disorientation going on around the place. And we just thought, man, we really need to anchor and center ourselves on the person of Jesus the way of Jesus, and the words of Jesus. And nowhere are the words of Jesus given in more explicit and lengthy and coherent terms than in the Sermon on the Mount. It's the longest teaching of Jesus in one bit, one chunk that we have in all of the Scriptures. And so we said, let's, let's attune ourselves, let's attend well to this teaching of Jesus that we might center our lives on Jesus and on His Word to us. Um, and so we did, we've just kind of been chipping our way through it quite slowly over the last 18 months and we come to back to it this week and for the next four weeks we'll be journeying through Matthew chapter 7. So I encourage you to be reading along, reading ahead, re- studying through for yourselves Matthew chapter 7 um, as, we, as we get through uh, the, the remainder of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, so this week, uh, if your Bible is anything like mine, I encourage you to open your Bibles and Matthew chapter 7 begins with a wee subheading there um, on the top of my Bible that says, Judging others. Yeah. Clearly a popular topic. Uh, you know, everyone came out for it this morning, didn't they? You know? <laughs> um, so we're gonna delve into we're gonna delve into God's word and let's just begin with reading Jesus' words for us this morning from Matthew chapter seven. Jesus says, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say that your brother, uh, to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God, we think. All right. (laughs) Um, You know, I got to be honest, I shared with the first service, I got to be honest, this is a text that I come to this morning uh, soberly. It's a message that I come to soberly. 
uh, because it's one that as I've studied and dove into this week and over the last couple of weeks, this text and trying to understand what it really is and what God might speak to us, I believe God's given me a message, but it's a message that is a little bit nuanced and a little bit complicated and a little bit, one that, one that could easily be misunderstood. It's a message that is going to take us to the heart of sacred cows or cultural idols that exist outside of the church but also inside the church. And so that's why I come soberly to the text this morning because I believe God would want us to honor His Word, to remain faithful to His Word. And so the invitation for each of you is to please Let's be listening clearly. Let's be listening to the voice of the Spirit. Let's be listening to what God might say to us this morning. Because when it comes to judging others, this is not a delicate, uh, this is quite the delicate topic, isn't it? This is perhaps, you know, when Jesus says, do not judge, this is perhaps the verse in the Bible that I think just about everyone in post-Christian, highly secular, Western society would be able to stand up and say, yes, preach it, preacher, right? Everyone can get on board with this. Everyone can embrace Jesus' words and everyone can endorse and say, yes, I support that. Yes, I'm 100% on board. Do not judge. Yes and amen, right? Everyone can be, yes, this is totally it, right? And in fact, a lot of people take these words of Jesus and they weaponize them to preach back against those who do judge, particularly those from the church who judge, right? Our world, our culture will weaponize Jesus' words against the church so easily and so often. I see a few people nodding. I'm glad it's not just me who's observed such things. And in fact, it shows up all over the place. This, this judgmental spirit, this judging of others is a significant barrier to people even considering the gospel and the truth of who Jesus is. In 2007, David Kinnaman did a worldwide study of young adults all across the world and, uh, and, and his, his results show that judgmental attitudes or judgmental spirits was one of the most significant barriers to young people considering the gospel. In a sense, it's, it's, a, it's a blockage, to a hindrance to Christian witness around the world. We saw that only reinforced, actually, through Wilberforce uh, Foundation did a, a study here in New Zealand back in 2018, the Faith and Belief Study, that just kind of measured and, and assessed what, what people actually believed. And over a 1,000 people across our country, here in Aotearoa, took this survey, and the results showed that of those um, over a thousand people, there was a subset who were not Christian, but open to change in terms of their view, open to exploring faith. And of, so of that subset group, more than 48% said that judgmental attitudes or judgmental spirit would be, was a significant blockage to them even entertaining the gospel. This is prevalent, isn't it? This shows up all across our world and our culture all the time. And, and, and the truth is, friends, we can't deny that in the history of humankind, great pain and great hurt has been done by judging other people. That's why I know we're, t we're, we're stepping into a delicate subject this morning. It's not one I take lightly. 
yet Jesus' words remain the same. And so what I want to do this morning is step through the text um, in three sections. We'll look at verses 1 and 2 and then verses 3 through 5 and then that weird verse 6 at the end. Um, And we'll try to make sense of, you thought it was weird when I read it, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. It's all right, we'll get to it. Um, We'll try to make sense of what God might be saying through those, and I think we need to do some, a bit of uh, interpretation. We'll get a bit technical for a wee wee while, but um, I think it will serve us well in the long run, and then at the end, I'll try and pull some threads together in terms of what God might be saying to us and inviting us to respond with. Is that all right? So let's look at Jesus' words in uh, Matthew chapter 7, the first two verses. He says, Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Uh, Here we see typical form of parallelism is the term. We see this show up throughout the biblical literature all the time. It shows up in Psalms, and it shows up in Proverbs in the Old Testament. It shows up again and again and again, where Jesus basically says the same thing in repeated uh, forms, but using slightly different language. So judge and judged, measure and measured, right? You see that showing up in the text there? This is because for the majority of human history, people have not had the Bible in written form where they could look it up and read along for themselves. They heard the Scriptures read to them. They heard the Scriptures spoken. It was an oral culture where the Scriptures were read and spoken. So therefore, the use of parallelism or repetition helped people understand and get get the Word in them, right? That's essentially what we have going on here. Jesus is using the same technique. Preachers often use it still to this day, right? Um, But this is what's going on. So let's get a little bit more technical for a moment, okay? So just stay with me, engage the brain, keep breathing, it'll be all right, we'll get through this together. Um, Because there's two problems with this text in terms of how it's been interpreted that we need to unpick and unstitch a wee bit. The first is a translation issue, and the second is an interpretation that is like a totalizing or universalizing interpretation that's really unhelpful and problematic. Okay, so let's start with... The, techni- the, t- the, the translation issue. And this takes us right to the heart of that word, to judge. Jesus says, do not judge, or you too will be judged. Now this is the Greek word, krino. Krino is the Greek word to judge. And why this is a problematic term for us in English is because in the Greek language that this was originally written in, it, this word krino has a really wide semantic range is the technical term. It means, in, in Greek, it can mean lots of different things, essentially, is what, is what that means. So, for example, it can refer to uh, dis- moral discernment, that of knowing good from bad, Okay? It can refer to that. It can refer to legal scenarios or lawsuits in court where, you know, there is a judge who is making pronouncements good from bad, and they're legal by nature, right? That sense of justice. It can refer to governmental direction or that of a whole nation being judged towards a certain direction, right? Or it can also refer to final damnation by God. Ooh, that's the sticky one, isn't it? It can refer to all these things. So how do we know what Jesus is talking about when Jesus says, do not judge or you too will be judged? One thing we can know for sure is that within that range of options, we can narrow the field a wee bit by saying, we know that Jesus means 
Definitely, do not condemn someone. Only God can condemn. That is no, no human being can condemn another person, right? So, personal condemnation of another person, to despise someone so thoroughly that there's, you know, like that, that is off the table, right? That is, Jesus is saying, for sure he's saying that. That's what he means here. Do not condemn someone through your words, through your attitudes, through your thoughts about them, through your actions to them. Do not condemn for as you condemn, you will be condemned, right? We know that, that we're confident that, it, that Jesus means at least that, right? And so if we, mean, if we know that he means that, we cannot assume the posture of God in condemning another person. It means that do not judge doesn't necessarily make it a prohibition of rendering judgment or discernment about what is good and bad. But that's still part of this. And so the key to understanding this passage, in my mind, is knowing which meaning is in mind in this wide semantic range. And the truth is, we don't get anywhere clear on clarifying this if we don't admit and be honest with the truth that Jesus renders pretty strong moral judgments throughout the Scriptures. It shows up all the time. And not only that, he's also compelled his disciples to render such judgments regularly throughout the Scriptures. And so if we're going to be honest, intellectually honest, we have to take the rest of Jesus' teaching and the person of Jesus in mind. We have to trust that the Word is telling us something here and we have to hold this together, that He compelled His disciples to know the difference between what is good and bad and to make judgments around such things. In fact, one could argue that the whole Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is doing this and encouraging this all the way back through the Beatitudes, right? In verse 6, that weird verse that we'll come to, right? (laughs) The disciples are essentially called upon to classify people, someone as pigs and as dogs, so as to avoid them, right? Now, this is not ultimate condemnation, but it is a judging or it is a discerning of right and wrong in people. We see it right here in this passage. Later on in chapter 7, we'll come to this in a couple of weeks, the disciples are warned to be discerning about who is a wolf and who is a sheep, despite their initial appearances, right? Later on in Matthew chapter 10, we see that the disciples need to render a judgment about who is worthy in every village or town that they visit. Remember, Jesus sent the disciples out to go and do what he'd been doing, to preach what he'd been preaching, to heal the sick, to cast out the demons, to raise, you know, to raise the dead, to go do these things. And if they came to a village where they were not received, what did he instruct them to do? As you leave that village, he said, shake the dust from your feet. You see, all the way through, Jesus is not just making moral judgments himself, but he's compelling his disciples, his followers, that they also need to do that. Matthew 18 is perhaps the most explicit case of this. In verses 15 through 20 of Matthew 18, the church is called upon to make discerning judgments about who is in the true kingdom church and who's to be treated as an outsider. The language of binding and loosing in Matthew 18, 18 is very strong and rather pointy. And the shocking thing about this pronouncement is not that God separates the good from the bad, or as we see in Matthew 25, the sheep from the goats. 
but that he has given this authority and this responsibility to the assembly of God's people with the promise that in this gathering he is present and he is working. So the point is that Christian disciples are instructed to distinguish the good from the bad, including good people from bad people. (sighs) Did he just say that? Therefore, we have to be careful about reading Jesus' words in these first two verses in some universalizing or totalizing fashion that makes it inconsistent and incoherent with the rest of Jesus' life and teaching. Do you hear me? That's just Matthew's gospel. The rest of the gospels reinforce The Apostle Paul's writings take things even further. The rest of the New Testament bears a consistent witness to this truth. But boy, we find it hard to receive that, don't we? Boy, we find it hard. Here's perhaps one of the most helpful ways to summarize this. Scott McKnight, one of the the commentators I was reading on on this text, he, he, he summarizes it well where he says, Christians can pronounce that is wrong and that is good, but not you are condemned by God. Jesus' divinely given ethics shape a society for reconciliation instead of damnation. I think this is a helpful summary of what Jesus is saying in this text. And we need to understand what he's saying in order to be able to then apply it to our lives and embody the response, have an embodied response to the truth of God's word, right? Where where the encouragement is, if you can put that slide back up, please, Rachel, that that we, we are encouraged. No, no, we're compelled by Jesus as followers of his, that we are to make pronouncements. This is wrong, this is right, this is good, this is bad, but we cannot ever say, you are condemned by God. That's God's position and we cannot adopt that posture or that position. Are you with me? Tricky word, right? Let's carry on. Verse 3, Jesus says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. This is so far-fetched, isn't it? This is almost humorous. Uh, You can imagine, you know, like someone with a plank, you know, uh, coming out of their eye and, you know, that kind of person that's like so like, what the heck? And you're kind of wondering, oh, oh, why do I always run into trouble anytime I go through a doorway? You know, that, like you can imagine, right? Like this is, this is kind of borderline humorous, right? And, and so far-fetched. But Jesus is really driving home and making a point. And, and I think the point that he's trying to drive home is summed up in those words when he says, you hypocrite, right? Don't be hypocritical. You hypocrite. Did you know this is the only time in Matthew's gospel that the term hypocrite is applied to Jesus' disciples or followers. 
Every other time in Matthew's gospel the term hypocrite is used, it's applied to the Pharisees or the religious leaders of the day. This is the only time. You think he's trying to get their attention around something? I think so, right? You hypocrite, he says. And, and, and I think basically the, the bottom line in, this, in this, these, these three verses, you know, three, four, and five, is like Jesus is saying, if you want to be able to embody and live out a faithful response to do not judge, then you've got to focus more on yourself than you do on others. Tend to your own life and your own inner world. Focus there, get rid of the plank, you know. Tend to yourself more than you tend to others. Focus on yourself more than you focus on others. This is what Jesus is saying, right? Deal to yourself first. And because he, he knows if we will focus on ourselves, we'll see just how clearly we are not perfect. I know you're all pretty great, but I also know you're not perfect. I know that you have shortcomings and you have faults and you have sin. Because I do too. And I know when we look at ourselves humbly and honestly in the light of who God is, we see just how far we have fallen from our destiny, from our created image in the likeness of God. We have, we have fallen so far short. And that should overwhelm us in desperation for the goodness and grace of God. And it should overwhelm us in His kindness to give us mercy and grace and love, shouldn't it? It should overwhelm us because when we look at ourselves and we, we wrestle honestly with our shortcomings and our failures, the plank in our eyes, when we wrestle with that honestly in light of who God is, it, it, it does some things inside of us, doesn't it? Think about it. What is it, what is it birth from our inner person, our, our, the core of who we are? I think it births two things that are vital that Jesus is wanting us to, this is what's required in order for us to have an embodied response to the do not judge text. It draws forth from us humility, doesn't it? Because we realize I don't have it all together. I never did and I'm sorry to say never will but it also draws forth compassion because we can see the other person who's in front of us not as one who is condemned, but as one who is just as broken and hurt and messed up and in need of God's grace as I am. It's a moment of solidarity almost where we can see, yes, and so it draws forth from us both humility and compassion and Jesus, I think, would say, in order for us to be able to not judge, Meaning, we still make discernments around good and bad, but we don't condemn. We gotta be people of humility and compassion. <laughs> Does this make sense? Are we getting there? And the key, he says, is to focus more on tending to your own life than you do to the lives of others. John Wesley, when writing on this text, had a, had a beautiful uh, statement, I think, summar summarizing this. He says that the judging that Jesus condemns here is thinking about another person in a way that is contrary to love. That's what Jesus is condemning, to think of another person in a way that is contrary to love. That kind of judging is impossible if we are people of deep humility and deep compassion, isn't it? It's impossible. It doesn't fit. It's incongruent with a person who is humble and compassionate, right? All right, now let's look at this verse 6. Do not give dogs what is sacred and do not throw your pearls to pigs. 
If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. What the? That's just, it's just weird, right? I mean, that's weird. And the truth is, that's, that's kind of the scholarly consensus too. <laughs> um, as I've studied this text, most uh, biblical scholars go, yeah, that's just a little odd. Not quite sure how that coheres and fits and makes sense. I'm not sure how it's connected to the, what comes before or what comes after. I mean, people have gone around and they've done like in-depth analysis. Like it shows actually, you know, we talked earlier about how verses one and two show the parallelism to kind of reinforce the thing. Well, here it's a, it's a, chias, a chiasm or chiastic structure. You see how it begins by talking about dogs and the, then the, the, the thing that the dogs do shows up at the bottom, at the end of this verse, as, as the ones that turn and tear apart. And then in the middle, you've got the pigs who trample underfoot, right? That's what the pigs do. Pigs trample underfoot, dogs turn and tear apart. And, and so you've got this encasing thing, right? I mean, and again, like, what does that tell us? Why does that matter? I'm not sure. Um, I'm a little bit unsure myself, to be honest. I've, I've studied it. Um, how should we interpret this and make sense of it? Um, to be honest, down through the days, there's, 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 there's something here that, that we will always struggle to make sense of because the day and age in which we live is so different from the day and age in which Jesus delivered these words. And in particular, one of the significant differences is that in Jesus' time, Sacred and secular were clear distinctions between things. Clean and unclean were clearly delineated things, right? In our world, we don't like to uphold the sacred-secular divide, do we? In fact, ever since the Reformation, that's been kind of unwinding itself, and it's showing up in all kinds of different ways, uh, in, in different ways. And, and just as a little kind of for free from Clint, um, and my limited scholarly ability, which is limited, I, I assure you, I think we would do well, it would serve us well to reclaim a little more reverence around the sacred for our lives and for our church. Um, the traditional interpretation of this text, actually, throughout most of church history, was to apply this directly to the Eucharist or Holy Communion. This was, this was the text by which people justified the fencing of the table is the language, essentially meaning that communion was off limits to anyone who was not baptized into the church. Baptism was the initiation rite that gave one access to the communion table. Because why? Because we're serving the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. These are sacred Things. This is why we call it a sacrament, a sacred act, right? So for a long time, that's how people interpreted this text. That's what Jesus is talking about. But what does that have to do with judging and planks in eyes and, right? I mean, uh, I'm not quite sure, it's unclear. Another really common interpretation that I remember hearing when I was growing up on this text was, actually, this refers to our efforts in sharing the gospel with others, Right? That's the pearl of great price. That's the pearl that we don't want trampled underfoot. That's the sacred that we don't want torn apart. It's the good news of the gospel. That's the, the precious taonga, right? That's the thing that we need to guard and protect. And, and there are some people, this, this would be in alignment with the text, essentially. This would, you know, there would be some people 
who, for whatever reason, are so antagonistic and closed towards the gospel that they will only ever discredit and trample. And so, the best, most faithful response to such people is to step away rather than press in. That's how it was often interpreted for me growing up. Anyone else ever heard something along those lines around this text? Yeah, there's a few people going, yeah, that kind of makes sense, you know. A recent one, a more recent one, uh, interpretation of this text was to say that actually this, in Jesus' day and age, when Jesus delivered this, was actually to say that, again, the, the, pre- the, 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 the treasure was that of the gospel and that it was not to be given to the Gentiles. Because the Gentiles were often referred to being unclean. Well, for a Jew, you, we all know, like, pigs, right, are unclean. Dogs unclean. Dogs were often in that day and age kind of wild, um, you know, like scavengers that would just kind of run around like people didn't own dogs like pets, you know, or, you know, like, like we have today. You, you know, they weren't like this cute white fluffy ball that, you know, everyone loves. Um, I'm talking about Esther's dog. She's got this adorable little, um, for those of you who were just wondering. Um, they, they weren't, they were like these wild, heinous, ugly, unclean things, right? And so, and so the common, the, the, a recent interpretation is actually saying, well, when Jesus delivered these words, it was pre-resurrection, pre-ascension, before Pentecost, before the commission to go and bring the gospel to all the world and all nations and all people. Remember, Jesus often said, I came first to save the Jew and then the Greek. And so that makes some sense of it too, but I'm not fully convinced by that one either because I don't know that it does justice to the heart of God that we see revealed through the early chapters of Matthew where uh, actually, you know, God's heart is for everyone. That starts to show up even in the early chapters. And so it's just a tricky one. I say all this to say, like, I don't have a conclusive answer for us. We've got some insight. I think it sheds some light on it. And so it draws us back to kind of like, let's just hold that tension in light of the whole of where we've been. Because what it does tell us, I think, in light of where we started in, chap- in verses one and two, is that Jesus' call to his disciples is to be morally discerning between good and bad, clean and unclean, healthy, unhealthy, right? Right, and wrong. He does. And so the key, I think, to reading and interpreting this passage, if you want a bottom line, if you're taking notes, this is the one you want to write down, you've been waiting for it all this time, bless you, (laughs) is this, we must learn to distinguish moral discernment from personal condemnation. We got to learn to distinguish moral discernment from personal condemnation. This is that highly nuanced argument that I kind of bring with some fear and trepidation because this is not what our world wants to hear. This is not how we often operate. We can't separate the two. We have simplistic thinking. And I think the invitation this morning is for us to press in a little bit deeper. And, the, and, I, and so I'll come around at the end um, with, with four people that God's really laid on my heart. But I think the best example, the thing that I've been most inspired by as I think about what it means for us to embody this and live this out, the best example, like I've got all kinds of examples from my own life and stories from my own life, but 
the best example, I think, in how to live this out are found in the person of Jesus. And the example that we get in, in, the end of, in the end of John chapter 7, if you want to flip there in your Bibles, I encourage you to, it's not going to be on the screen, but the end of John chapter 7, we get this story that may not be original to uh, the gospel of John itself, but is highly likely to be a well-remembered, historically accurate account of something that Jesus did on a certain occasion. That's why it shows up in our text. Starting in verse 53, it says, Then They all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them, public setting. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Stunning example. Stunning example. I mean, Jesus does this odd thing in response to a pretty poignant question. He bends down and starts writing in the dust. And we have no idea. The text doesn't tell us what he was writing in the sand. Was he writing, you know, some, some have suggested maybe he's, maybe he's like writing down a list of all the sins of those men standing around with a stone in hand. He's writing them in the sand where it can easily be wiped away and removed. Maybe he's writing down the words, do not judge, for as you judge, so you will be judged. We don't, maybe he's writing, grace works wonders. We don't know. All we know is that there's a pretty powerful outcome, a pretty powerful response to whatever Jesus was writing and doing in that moment. The stones are dropped, the people walk away. And then Jesus delivers those final words. Has no one condemned you? She says, no one. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Friends, the same is true for you and I, isn't it? We are not condemned. We are not. No one. The heart of God is that no one would ever face condemnation. But he's not done. Even after that incredible word, he's not done. He says, go, leave your life of sin. Or as other translations say, go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. In those five words, I think Jesus does something really profound. He casts a moral judgment, doesn't he? He pronounces sin as sin. 
And you've got to expect that woman was cut to her heart, deeply convicted, right? Got to expect that was likely what would happen. I mean, she was human, we're human, that would be how I would respond. I don't know about you, but you know, if I heard that, I would be like cut to the heart, deep conviction that Jesus, the Savior of the world, the Messiah, would acknowledge and name my sin. But I'd also leave pretty filled with faith. I don't know about you, I'd leave pretty encouraged and inspired and motivated to live differently, to indeed leave my life of sin, to live fully into the life that I've always wanted. Why? Because the grace of God is that strong. It's that good enough. And Jesus, the one who acknowledged and saw my sin and held the mirror up for me to look fully into it, has said, I believe in you. I believe you can go and live the life you've always wanted. I believe you don't need to be held up and trapped in that sin that's holding you back anymore. I believe this is possible for you. Go. Trust in my grace. Live in my grace. Experience the fullness and freedom that comes from that. And friends, I don't know where you come from today as we come to close this message, but I've just had four different people on my heart as I've been thinking about how do we, how do we, as God's people here at the well in Ototahi in 2022, embody a response to this truth, to God's word to us today? What does that actually mean for us? What does that look for us? The first person who came immediately to mind was those who have felt judged and judged in the sense of truly condemned and despised particularly those who have felt judged and condemned and despised by the church. And on behalf of whatever we corner of the body of Christ that God has invited me and entrusted me with authority to lead, then from the bottom of my heart, I just want to say I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry that that is your experience, that that has been part of your journey, that is not at all who I understand God to be. His heart for you is not to condemn. And He calls His people to a better way. And I'm sorry that they have not honored that in your life. But there's another person um, that God really laid on my heart because this is my story. And it's those who, and this is a tricky one, so you're going to have to listen closely to this. It's, again, a nuanced understanding. It's, it's those who have been hurt by the church in particular, and you carry baggage and hurt and pain from the church because you've felt judged. But the truth of God's Word this morning is being held up to you like a mirror where you can look back and actually have that hurt and pain reframed to recognize, oh, that hurt and pain that I experienced, those things those people said to me was not condemnation. It felt like it. I acted like it was in my response, but actually, it was a gracious, loving correction, rebuke, challenge, distinguishing good from bad. This was the gift that a counselor gave to me when I was really struggling with some deep-seated bitterness and hurt and woundedness. And then graciously, lovingly, this counselor just kept holding it up before me and saying, Clint, sounds like they were 
genuinely trying to grow you up, mature you. Yes, it was a painful thing to hear, but pain's not always wrong. And that for me was huge. Do you understand what I'm saying? That we can have those hurts and where we feel judged in the past that actually, no, Jesus, Jesus compels his followers to make moral discernments between right and wrong and good and bad and that we would learn to live into that and learn to represent that and share that with one another. Yes, bringing grace with it, that we would be like Jesus, full of grace and truth is what John 1 talks of Jesus, right? That that be true of who we are as we enter into those kind of conversations and I needed the gracious, loving, truthful encounter with a godly counselor holding that mirror up to say, I don't hear condemnation in those words, Clint. I know it felt like it. You clearly responded like it was, but it was not condemnation. And it totally reframed my experience. How? It opened up my heart in order to receive the healing work of God. Prior to that, I was hardened and closed. And so I was the one who was standing in the way of that healing work that God wanted to do, that God wanted to bring, the way in which He wanted to grow me up and mature me. I was the hindrance. I was the one blocking that flow of living water from welling up inside of me. I was the one. And I wonder if there's some people this morning where that's true of your story as well. I wonder if thirdly, there's those who, you hear this this morning and you go, actually, wow, I didn't see myself as this before walking in here this morning, but sitting here and having God's word held up like a mirror, I recognize now, I do judge others. And more than the morally discerning between right and wrong, I, I cross over often into despising people, looking at people without any form of love in my heart and mind. I, I judge and I judge regularly. And in my thoughts and my attitudes, maybe more than my words, but sometimes my words too, I bring forth condemnation and that is not my place or posture. And you hear the voice of God saying to you today, do not judge or so you shall be judged. And then the fourth one, again, this is a bit of a nuanced one, a bit of a tricky one to land with. But I just believe there's some people here today for whom the Spirit of God might be saying, you've not fallen off in the extreme of the judging when you hear Jesus saying, do not judge, that actually you've compromised and you've given up any and all sense of moral discernment between good and bad, right or wrong. And the Spirit of God this morning is holding up the mirror of His Word to you and your life and saying, actually, you've swung the pendulum so far from condemnation that you've, you've, you've given away moral discernment. You've not honored Jesus' Word, His way the way in which he instructs his disciples and followers to live. And so you've, 
essentially avoided any form of moral discernment because of, and you've used this verse as justification for it. Do not judge, right? But when we actually understand what Jesus means by that, I think we have to come face to face to the truth of actually I've not lived in honoring that word. And so what do we do? What do we do? Well, we're going to respond in a few moments. And so I'd like to invite the, the prayer team and the worship team, if you'd come. Um, we're going to respond in a few moments. And, uh, and, and this feels weird and awkward doing in a, in a room where there's so few people, you know. Um, but I think it's appropriate and I think it's necessary. And so we're going to respond in a few moments. And, uh, and we've got some faithful, trusted people to pray with here. But, but the encouragement, I think, for all of us would be um, that there's good news. There's hope. We can, we can be transformed. That actually, if we allow the truth of God's word into our hearts, that if, we, if we allow ourselves to be re-gospeled in a sense, allow the good news of the gospel to once again come to us and we hear it and receive it, that those of us who have you know, fallen off on the side of being judgmental and overly critical, and that, that actually we lean into and we look closely at those texts throughout the New Testament where Jesus shows up like here, the woman caught in adultery. And we allow His like undeserving, overreaching grace to totally reorient and reshape our minds and our hearts. But we start by looking at ourselves and allowing us to get that from Him, right? For those who maybe have, have kind of swung the pendulum and, and avoided moral discernment altogether in a way of saying, I don't, I don't want to be judgy, you know? that actually you need to sit and wrestle with those texts like I listed off all the way through Matthew's Gospels and read on through, you know, Paul's Gospel, you know, Paul, the Apostle Paul's writings and in, and in James chapter 3 and 4, you're not going to avoid it there. James is pretty straight to the point. I mean, that actually you need to balance Jesus full of grace with Jesus full of truth. And that that's, that's the way to lean into it. Allow God's word to really work, work in us and work through us. Allow the gospel to come to us anew and afresh. And for those who have that deep wounding and pain and hurt, there is healing for you. Paul, in his famous text in Romans chapter 8, says, For now in Christ there is no condemnation. We saw Jesus delivered the words himself, Neither do I condemn you. You are not condemned. He loves you. He longs for you to be set free from that hurt and pain and He can transform that today.